Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to a talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 55, going back to the beginning of the second full year of the show in 2011. I'll explain how that connects with what I'm going to say in the introduction uh, near the end of this introductory segment. But the first thing I think is important to put out there is that I'm making this introductory recording on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. And it is possible that in future years, the date won't resonate like it probably does right now. I'm making a recording on Election Day while the final ballots are being cast in an election process that's frankly been going on for more than a, more than a month or two now because due to the coronavirus, COVID-19, and other issues, American citizens have had to find more creative ways to vote. And frankly, going back to even 2004, certainly 2008, uh, long lines at the polls have led many states to in invest their efforts in other ways of trying to gather the vote. So this year, in 2020, it is not unusual for there to be early voting, uh, voting in person, but on weekends leading up to Election Day, November 3rd. It's just that it's become controversial this year for you know, kind of fake political reasons, in my opinion. There's nothing odd, nothing in our history that's odd, about uh, in-person voting early leading up to the election, at least not in our recent history. And there's certainly nothing odd about mail-in balloting, uh, voting via absentee ballot. The method that seems to be the most upsetting to certain political conservatives in the sense of registered voters getting a preemptive ballot mailed to them in a statewide system designed to be a mail-in form of election uh, has been going on in Washington state for literally more than a decade. It's not at all unusual. But everything about this particular time we're living in, in 2020, and really going back again for more than a decade, is that everything is controversial. Uh, whether to drink water for some folks must in some ways be kind of a controversial thing, because almost anything can be twisted into a Republican versus Democrat paradigm, and that creates some really terrible ways of debating. Inappropriate Conversations number 55, which was originally released back in, say, May, uh, I want to say May 8th of 2011, was dealing to some degree with that. The fact that we don't have the right kinds of intelligent conversations with one another even where we stand in diametrically opposed uh, political positions or outlooks or have very different backgrounds, there's a better way to conduct conversations, even contentious conversations, than the way we've been doing it. I felt this way in May of 2011, and nothing has changed in the intervening almost decade now. This podcast will um, you know, harken back to a time where my perspective was more about being almost equally opposed to both political parties as a radical moderate. And I'm still not a big fan of the two-party system as a radical moderate. But I feel like probably the time has come for me to draw a line in the sand and make a change that I've said on previous Inappropriate Conversations shows wasn't necessary. Maybe it didn't matter if I stayed a registered Republican, despite the fact that the Republican Party has drifted so far away from the sort of Eisenhower version of republicanism that I still have a great deal of, of affinity to and interest in, and even away from the Goldwater version of, of conservative Republican Party politics 
and frankly, in my opinion, pretty doggone far away from Ronald Reagan. And I sit here as somebody who's been a part of the Republican Party off and on for a long time, not because I'm passionate about Reagan-era politics, because I didn't vote for Reagan, and I've outlined that in past inappropriate conversations. I think there was one, I want to say it was uh, episode 29. I'm just guessing on the number there, but it was elections are not horse races. I'm pretty sure is what I called it. And the idea behind that was that we need to be more strategic in the way we vote, and that it's certainly not about hitching my wagon to a color and always voting, quote-unquote, for my team, but it's also not about trying to pick the winner and therefore the vote I cast confers on me some sort of honor because I was a good guesser. Elections are not horse races. And in 1984, the first time I was allowed to cast a vote in a political election based on my age, I voted against the Republican Party because I was convinced that there was absolutely no way Ronald Reagan would not win in 1984 in the state of Oklahoma. And therefore, the best thing I could do for my country and frankly for the political party of, uh, of the GOP was to vote against Reagan and try to narrow the popular vote as much as possible because it was widely perceived and correctly predicted to be a landslide. But here you've got an incumbent president who's clearly showing signs of mental deficiency. I correctly predicted his Alzheimer's disease. I'll get to that here in a moment. And in the midst of that, it just seemed like a really bad idea to, to make someone in that mental state perceive that he had some kind of a mandate and, and even one vote influencing the national popular vote in a tiny, tiny way in a state that he was going to carry with such a, you know, with such a landslide that he didn't even need to visit the state from a campaign perspective. Well, even that one vote could make a difference. So I've been voting strategically ever since. But with with what Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the United States Senate and the current president have done in managing Supreme Court vacancies going all the way back to the death of Antonin Scalia, if not earlier, uh, the time has come. I'm simply going to switch my party affiliation and um, all the old uh, inappropriate conversations, topics that hit politics, uh, any previous Facebook post I've made kind of reminding people that, hey, I'm I'm a Republican because there's no point in making a change because I didn't really see why being reaffiliated with a different political party was going to make a difference. And probably the best thing I could do in the past few years here as a political moderate was to remain in the Republican Party for the purpose of voting as a moderate in those primaries. I was totally content this year to let the Democratic candidates sort themselves out. And I was looking forward to being able to cast a vote for anybody else in the Republican primary for, you know, doing something different in the White House this year. But I think now the time has come, if nothing else, as a protest to recent things that have happened in appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court to formally change my political affiliation to um, you know, unaffected, moderate, um, you know, neither party, none of the above. That's probably a more accurate depiction of who I am. I'm going to register as an independent as soon as the opportunity presents itself. Didn't seem like the kind of noise to introduce to Election Day 2020, but at some point I will be... Um, asked the question in a formal way about my political affiliation, and the time has come to make that change. Now, none of this is shocking. And going back to 1984, it dawned on me as I was thinking about the introduction of this particular show and the very challenging and very emotionally difficult question I want to ask myself as a lead into a conversation about the right way or better ways to debate. 
is to look back on that same period because I have probably not had any meaningful contact with an entire wing of my extended family since around 1984-1985. I remember being um, in attendance at my grandfather's funeral. And at that point, a lot of my mother's relatives, who now live in the American South, the American Southeast, uh, were there for the funeral. And I personally don't think, still don't think, it was a good idea to bring up political, um, you know, theory, political politics, partisan politics, at the after-funeral family dinner. It just didn't seem like it was a smart move. And it put me in the difficult position as a college student at the time of being honest with these family members about what I thought when, when I was being asked fairly direct questions, questions that I did indeed try to dodge for at least a short period of time, or do I just lie to them to keep everybody happy at the funeral? And I don't feel like I hold a lot of responsibility for this conversation not going well, because I wasn't the one bringing up the conversation or forcing the conversation. I was indeed the one trying to dodge the topic. And it was kind of funny how when I answered honestly to my my belief that the current sitting United States president in the 1980s was frankly a dementia patient, wouldn't be surprised if he had Alzheimer's, he was arguably unfit to serve for that reason, and I was deeply concerned about what kind of shadow government was propping him up and running the White House and the administrative branch, branch in his stead, because although I didn't have any doubt that he had moments of lucidity, it was also pretty clear that he didn't have moments of lucidity, that these things do come and go. When my wife's mother had Alzheimer's disease, there were times when she recognized us pretty well and could remember very specific things about our relationship and things that had happened in our past. And there was times when she had no idea who she was, let alone who we were. It comes and goes. But it would have been wise for these cousins and these second cousins to not be pushing a religious right agenda with me at that lunchtime family gathering um, if they didn't want to hear the truth. Because I did kind of make it clear that, from my perspective, I was not at all convinced that we had the right person in the White House, and that while I might have been okay with a different Republican, that wasn't certainly something that was on, on offer, any more than that was something available to us here in the year 2020, where we probably have an even less, maybe significantly far less appropriate representative of this political party sitting in the White House. The question, I think, specifically was something related to prayer in schools, and, and these members of my extended family who consider themselves to be extremely religious were not at all conversant with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and were not at all willing to accept that somebody who is 79, 10 years younger than them, junior to them in every way, from their perspective, in the family tree, offering them corrective advice on what Jesus actually said about prayer in the public educational centers of society during his time, and whether or not we ought to be applying the words of Jesus to our own time. I covered this topic in some detail in Inappropriate Conversations number 29 and 30, and it was only about a year ago that I put those out as talkback episodes. So if you catch Inappropriate Conversations at the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org, every podcast I've ever recorded is still there, uh, organized in monthly chunks on the right navigation bar, but everything from, from all the Walk the Earth questions and every inappropriate conversation, they're all up there on the site. Only some of them are available via streaming media. I've put a pin in a point in the middle of 2017 and said, hey, from the perspective of 
of Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is where the experience of inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth will begin. And that's part of the reason I've been using talkback episodes to hearken back to things that come earlier than that period in time. Talkback episodes like this one, because I know I'm of the mindset that it's much, much easier to listen to podcasts on the go via something like Spotify or Stitcher. And therefore, if I've walled off that by trying to not have more than 300 shows on the feeds at any given time, and I've picked a point where I want to pivot, that doesn't mean that some of those shows aren't worth bringing back, uh, improving the bit rate, and recording an introduction to. This introduction, though, was just a way of saying, at no point have these members of my family who live in the American South, and this really just dawned on me this week, as we're building toward another contentious four-year cycle of American presidential elections, I can't remember any any outreach from this branch of my family. Again, these people who perceive themselves to be my elders in every way, and, and perhaps accurately so. And whether this can be tied back to that one conversation on the day of my grandfather's funeral, I don't know. Um, maybe this is just the nature of the way my mother's side of the family operated. But... No, I, I would hear from, from my aunt uh, on my father's side of the family far more often than I would from any, particularly any of these cousins on the other side. And I just wonder sometimes if, if my, my version of Christianity, my understanding of what Jesus said and taught and commanded us to do on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, being different from the power politics of the American religious right was a deal breaker. And has always been the kind of thing that stopped people from writing a card or a note or picking up the phone. Uh, I don't know. There was talk, I guess, very early this year, uh, maybe even Christmas time last year, about some sort of family get-together in Georgia um, right around the 4th of July or somewhere in that ballpark here in 2020. And obviously, that got coronavirus completely out of the conversation and might not have worked anyway due to the work schedules of me and, and my wife in particular. Having said that, the thing that makes me wonder about it the most is, if we had gone in the middle of July, if we had for some reason sunk enough money into a trip that we decided to just go ahead and take it, or if there'd been some other reason or factor that had led us to say, yes, let's do that, would I be in anti-mask kind of conversations that would be just as contentious and bewildering as the one about President Ronald Reagan's health and prayer and school amendments all those decades ago? Would it just be a reprise of what I consider to be a fairly ugly situation? Well, there's every possibility that that's true. And among the things that made me think tie into two past Inappropriate Conversations episodes in particular. Both of these come before that point in 2017 where... The oldest shows currently on the feeds are available, and one of them probably will be a talkback episode at some point. I just kind of get my mind around the idea of being ready to speak about my mother's death with introductory material. Uh, so I've put this off into the distance, maybe even more than a year or so away. So the best way to encounter Inappropriate Conversations number 190, Dear Family Member, recorded just about literally a year ago, right now. it No, four years ago, right now, sorry. Um, time has been compressed in a really weird way. In the This was the recording right before the last election. 
And it was basically saying perhaps we've reached a point where the most important decisions I'll make in my lifetime can no longer be discussed with family members. They don't want to hear it. My challenges to perhaps partisan politics, for example, are confusing to them, aggravating, bewildering to them, and they don't want to talk about it. So episode 190 of Inappropriate Conversations, Dear Family Member, was a bit of a rolling, rambling discussion of that very idea that maybe, in some ways, I was aware of the fact that I'd had my last conversation about anything that could be considered serious and political with my mother. And that turned out to be true, because six months later, in March, she was gone. I recorded Inappropriate Conversations 195, Telling Your Stories Before It's Too Late, in the early part of March, really very close to the aftermath of my mother's funeral, and released it on March 16th of 2017. So, an episode just before the presidential election, five episodes later, dealing with the aftermath of things that were left undiscussed. And, you know, my conversations with my mother were outlined in in episode number 190, that she would bring up politics, but then not want to talk about it, because she was not interested in having an honest conversation. She was trying to persuade me that anybody was better than Hillary Clinton. And I was trying to persuade her that some of the information that she'd been fed about things like Benghazi, for example, were factually inaccurate. And I really got a face full of what it was like to have to try to have a conversation about facts with people who are not interested in facts anymore, who are post-factual. And with those being people who are consider themselves to be politically conservative and very religious is deeply disturbing because that concept of being, you know, post-factual has always been derided by, you know, most evangelical Christians, for example, as being the worst kind of postmodernism, as being, you know, a, sort of a morally relativist view that should be denigrated and denounced. But a lot of those conversations that I was having in 2016 were of that very same moral relativism ilk in the sense that people were, you know, I mean, I was basically told that you can't trust any journalist. And therefore, a reporter who was overseas at the time that an embassy in Africa, an American embassy in Africa was bombed, can't be trusted to have related that accurately because he's probably just part of that Clinton crowd. I mean, it was just, it was that delusional and irrational. And I found that to be very disturbing. I mean, with my father having already died and all the grandparents having already died, this was the last elder. I mean, I guess my older brother is now the only member of my family talking to me who is elder to me because the other relatives on my mom's side of the family who are cousins are you know, not picking up the phone, generally speaking. I mean, there's one there's one or two exceptions, but I consider them to be very much my contemporary. We're, we're just within a, a year or so of each other's ages. That notion of having somebody who's at least four or five years older or maybe more like 10 years older, um, the lines of communication have dropped. And I think those lines of communication have been severed over things which are purely political or a really seriously fundamental misreading of Scripture and an unwillingness to have an open conversation about it. Now, that's a little unfair. Maybe that open conversation would be more welcome somewhere other than the family lunch after a funeral. But I wasn't the one who brought up the topic at the family lunch after the funeral. So here's the reason that it's been weighing on me heavily 
not just going into the election here in 2020, which again is happening even as I speak all across the country today, anybody who did not have the will or the wherewithal to cast a vote prior to today um, is doing so right now. And my question is more related to my mother's clear commitment to voting for Trump in 2016. There not being enough evidence to suggest that things that have happened since then would have steered her opinion. Now, maybe that's because of health, mental condition, other things. But there was enough cognitive dissonance to truth and fact in 2016 that I suspect that you could almost take it as a given that that same cognitive dissonance around truth and fact would have persisted all the way through. That there'd be a certain amount of denial. Because it is a little bit hard to say, hey, you know what, I made a terrible mistake. I was given what I consider to be a horribly bad choice. And of the bad choices, maybe a good one couldn't be had, but I'm very unhappy with the one I chose. Whether I'd be equally unhappy with the other, I don't know. But I know I cast a vote for something that I now would like to reject. That is a hard thing for a lot of people to do. And a lot of people, we've seen it. I mean, if you just watch television news interviews, you see it. Would rather live in a state of very willful and persistent denial than acknowledge that they had anything to do, even indirectly, with kids being kidnapped from their parents and locked in cages and um, the the bookkeeping being so either negligent or willfully inept that there's, I don't believe that the number is 550, give or take. I believe the number is at least double that. We have documented cases of 500 plus kids who we believe will never be reunited with their parents because of the manner in which this this border child separation policy was implemented but as with everything related to that particular political decision made by Stephen Miller and the Trump administration, it's worse than it looks. You can almost guarantee that the truth behind the current public proclamations are worse than they look. And it's bad enough that you could seriously imagine my mother being in denial that any of that is really happening, that it's all just a hoax, and it's the media, and that it's fake news, and that whatever. Because it's so much easier to hide in that kind of denial and point fingers of blame elsewhere than holding yourself accountable for other people in your family, sons, for example, having spoken words of truth that weren't listened to because maybe sons-in-law and nephews and nieces were given more credibility. And that's genuinely heartbreaking, which is why I sit here not really wanting to ask you know, silly hypothetical questions like, how would my mother vote? Because that's really not kind of where my mind is. My mind right now is, how would my mother react to the COVID-19 crisis? And how it's been handled by, um, by the health department in the White House, by the CDC, by the president, by Pence, his chosen task force leader in addressing this by his son-in-law, put in charge of the supply chain management of getting um, you know, protective materials in the hands of doctors and nurses and others. My mother has two things about her that I'm really wrestling with that make this mystifying to me. And it's why I'm taking an extended amount of time to introduce this. Because right now, if I was having a debate with myself, I don't know how I would conduct it. That there are two threads which are definitely intertwined, but that I can't figure out how the connection would work. One, registered nurse, health professional, uh, somebody who, at least from the perspective of medicine, cared about science. 
the kind of person I would talk to if I was worried about something with my health. If I had, if I was being um, asked for to, to have some sort of an exploratory procedure performed, my mother would have been one of the first people I called to ask what all that meant. Now, I've been blessed. I've got wives and daughters who are part of, of the modern medical you know, practice today. So it's not like I don't know people who work in a hospital. I've lived a life surrounded by people who work in a hospital. But very few people in my family, despite having so many who are uh, in various positions or have at least served in volunteer roles in hospitals over the years, very few of them have this sort of diagnostic background that a, that a registered nurse from the 1950s, 60s, and beyond would have. And so you just wonder, what would her point of view be about coronavirus? And how could she reconcile this cognitive dissonance level of blind support for the president with the things he's saying and how they, they collide with good practice and, frankly, common sense when it comes to an airborne communicable disease that has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Would my mother be on the, none of those people have really died of this, that they're all sort of, they all had an underlying condition and this is just hospital administrators cooking the books. I mean, I have no idea. Would she, as, as somebody not just from age, but from various health circumstances, as a vulnerable person, the last time I was with her face to face, be in favor of everybody wearing a mask or opposed to anybody wearing a mask? Or would it be somewhere in between? Or would she insist on wearing a mask herself to keep herself safe, but it's the freedom and liberty of everyone else around her to choose not to? Or would she have the wisdom to not want to go into places if the general public surrounding her in a state like Oklahoma was not that wild about mask wearing? Would she, in other words, say, you know what? I would really like to go with you to the store, but I'm afraid and I won't because of mask wearing. Or would she be, this is a liberty thing and this is all a democratic plot to make the president look bad and then this masks are a hoax and a joke and they don't matter. I don't know. I mean, it's not like she was a surgical nurse. But again, as a, as a registered nurse and somebody who had a great deal of credibility, at least in my family on matters medical, I mean, what we used to say about my mother that was critical was that she was a bit of a sympathetic hypochondriac. And what I mean by that is that in my mother's worldview, nobody ever got a, a bruise. You always had some sort of contusion. And those might be synonymous terms. But what I mean is that if that nobody ever had a, a cough or a summer cold, you always had the onset of bronchitis and you needed to be worried about pneumonia. She would always diagnostically go to a place where she was at least very well aware of what the extreme would be and worried about it. That she didn't really see anybody who was dealing with mild forms of depression. Everything was diagnosable. Everything either needed counseling or medication. I mean, that everything needed to be treated. And then, you know, I guess maybe that that's part of the part and parcel of the, the training and the work learning experience over the years that if you're a nurse, you treat things. And therefore, everything is either the beginning of something really serious or it's already serious and this patient is in denial. I mean, she lived in a household with, you know, two sons and a, and a husband. And, you know, we were, like most people, probably the, the least excited people about going to the doctor. So she often did have to sort of push and say, you know, you should get that looked at. You should get that looked at. You should get that looked at. Well, how do I reconcile that with a Trump-era mindset that might easily buy into the Fox News narrative that all of this is harmless, 
It's no more than a flu. It's just a hoax. It's no big deal. And the fact is, if I've spent almost half an hour mulling this over from the deep background to the question at hand and get no closer to the answer when I interrupt this and play the talkback episode, that in and of itself is deeply disturbing. As a, as a son, as a child, I think one of the things that I appreciated about my parents is, was in many ways they were predictable. And even when they were predictable in ways that I did not appreciate, um, and maybe in ways that I still do not respect and appreciate in certain circumstances, certain situations, they were, again, if nothing else, predictable. But here, I've got no prediction to offer. Because part of who she is would say, of course, this is serious. She went to college. She studied the 1917-18 situation with the Spanish flu. She knows, she knows the risks when she sees them. Always inclined to assume that the worst is very possible. My guess is that that part of her would be saying, this is a big deal. Don't just social distance. Isolate at home as much as you can. Work from home if at all possible. Wear a mask. So forth and so on. But I don't know at the end of her life if that part of her brain was going to win any argument. And here we are. I am still the son of this woman who raised me. Still the son of a hospital administrator and a registered nurse. And my problem is that I think we've perhaps, as a society, and I say this on Election Day 2020, gone so far down an irrational rabbit hole that I can't even begin to predict that the the soundest, best-educated, most committed medical minds I've ever known in my life would make the right decision if it rubbed their politics the wrong way. Not knowing what else to do with that, I'll thank you for listening, and we'll transition into a talkback episode from 2011 on a better way to debate. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about argument and debate itself, something that we so often get wrong today. I was tempted to call this something along the lines of false dichotomy. Only a bad story has only two sides, like our political system, for example. And that's not a bad way to start in terms of looking at uh, false dichotomy as one of the, the key issues that you have that you know interfere with debate and discussion today. It's the assumption that there's only two choices to pick from first and foremost, and that a choice between those two must be made. So, A, um, no other points of view are welcome, that mistake, and B, particularism, the idea that there can only be one right answer, and of course, the biggest mistake of all, that the answer has to be either this 
or that. And I've complained about either or fallacies before, so I won't go down that path too far today. I will offer some criticisms. I'll offer criticisms of the either or false dichotomy between um, a society being either secular or sectarian. I'll you know, kind of restate some of my points of view about Republicans versus Democrats and the false dichotomy that represents. That in my mind, you actually have one big political party that has a very two-faced relationship with the American people. And the alternative is not those two choices, which really, in fact, don't feel like choices anymore, but those two choices versus everything else. And even that isn't an, an either or because everything else isn't one monolithic thing. But I'll also share a couple of stories from my past as well and uh, lead us to a different drummer that has a connection to film. So I won't I won't leave movies out of this thing either. I have at times in my life been called a master debater. I don't believe that anyone intended that as an insult, at least by and large, it hasn't been intended as an insult. It's been a way of people saying that uh, I'm an asset to have on their side if a complex issue comes up that requires a great deal of discussion and argument. And it is also a way of people saying that, that I can be very frustrating for them because I don't tend to uh, I don't tend to lose a lot of those conversations. Now, this is not uh, pride speaking. There's no hubris here. The reason that I don't tend to quote unquote lose a lot in debates is that I don't do it right. I've never really had any formal training. I wasn't part of the debate club in high school. Not even sure our high school had a debate club. Sure it did, but I was that far removed from it that its presence was meaningless to me. Now, the reason I don't do it right is that I don't tend to take a predetermined, entrenched position on something and feel that there's any honor to be had in arguing that something well. It's not a contest where there's winners and losers. What I mean by argument and debate, it has as much to do with discussion and discovery as anything else. In other words, if the position that I start with or the assumptions that I have made, you know, kind of mathematically in my head don't add up, I will abandon them. And I, not only do I not feel that that is in any way a sign of flip-flopping or being wishy-washy, it is an adherence to a belief in truth, which is a much better anchor than anyone who hitches their wagon to a particular point of view and won't listen to anyone else. Because even if they did listen to someone else, they wouldn't adjust their opinion to accommodate the facts, regardless of what those facts are, and regardless of what their starting opinion turned out to be. So what I want to do is just kind of talk through about some of the techniques that I've used that have made people say, wow, this is, a, this is somebody that argues very well. This is a master debate person. And give examples along the way as I go. So first, just two or three or four guiding principles. And if these principles, again, uh, conflict with formal debate class training, well, then don't uh, hold that against me. I've never been trained and don't really intend to. Because, again, to me, uh, an argument or a discussion or a debate, even a formal debate, is not necessarily about I win, you lose. A lot of it has to do with finding out where there is truth that can be leveraged from either one of those two sides. So just to kind of lay out the principles first and then to revisit them, perhaps with an anecdote or two. First one, grant opponents everything. You see, now I've already fallen afoul, perhaps, of certainly what you see modeled in American society today. But I think we, we need to do a better job of granting our opponents every argument that we possibly can. Anything that could conceivably make sense, because if I can grant to somebody who has a different point of view on a major issue, everything that they 
that they want to be granted that I can logically give to that uh, there isn't a clear factual mistake on their part or it's not it's beyond the point where it's going to be meaningful that I would just be agreeing with them completely there's going to be some stuff I have to hold back but I would grant them everything. For example, I've used this argument before. There's a couple of episodes in the past about prayer in school. And I talk, uh, again, over a two-episode span about my opinions there. So I won't re- restate that in that kind of detail. But if somebody wanted to argue with me that they were pro-prayer in school, and I was not not in favor of prayer in public school, the very first thing I would do is grant to them that the Bible is a good reference point, that it can be trusted as a resource. And if they needed me to grant them that it is the inerrant word of God himself, and therefore must be followed and must be obeyed, I would have no problem in a debate granting all of those arguments. Because I know that granting my opponents all those things will do two things. First, it will logically lead them to be more deferential toward my point of view. After all, I'm being generous. They may not be able to match my generosity, but they could be expected, I think, to match my generosity, whether they can pull it off, you know, tit for tat or not, I don't know. But the other thing is, by granting them everything, I'm heaping upon them the weight of their own point of view, that rather than quibble over details where there might be some question of, in the case of the Bible, question of authorship, um, I don't personally have those questions of authorship, so this is easy for me. But even if I did have, you know, an unbeliever's perspective, in the prayer and school debate, There's nothing to be gained by quibbling over what the Bible says. It makes perfect sense in that argument to grant your opponent everything. Because once they entrench themselves in a position that says that the Bible is the inherent, actual, factual, truthful word of God and must be followed, then I quote Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, where Jesus essentially says, you must not pray in the public educational centers of your society. Don't do it. It's almost a debate ender. In fact, in some ways, you feel a little guilty because it's almost a negating argument. I've given you a factual, logical end to the discussion and cheated you, perhaps, out of all the give and take of of how our society might be better if every kid prayed in school or, or how that kind of indoctrination is negative. It just cuts right to the quick and says, listen, you want me to grant you a lot of stuff? I'll grant you everything I can. And when I'm done, I'm going to expect you to live within the integrity of the things you said you wanted to be granted. And that works for other issues as well. In fact, if you listen, as I get deeper into the summer, I'm going to hit some other issues like uh, abortion. And it works there, too. So the first principle, grant opponents everything. Second one, hold others accountable for integrity. So again, it's that idea of saying, if you told me you wanted biblical inerrancy to be the theory, and I granted you biblical inerrancy, you can't come along later and say Jesus didn't really mean what he said about don't pray publicly in the synagogue so that others can see you and count your actions as good. No, you wanted the Bible to be true and inerrant and factually accurate. You've got to have the integrity to live within that. You know, if I grant it to you, Um, You can backtrack from it, but you concede your position at the same time. And third, strive to find the rest of the argument. This really gets us past that either-or problem, that false dichotomy issue, where there aren't just two sides. And oftentimes when you see two sides being presented, you know you're dealing with somebody who's creating what's called a straw man argument. I'm going to present somebody that... um, has no credibility whatsoever, name that person Democrat, and then, you know, attach all of my negative feelings toward that individual, instead of trying to find an actual real Democrat, or an actual real Republican, or a real evangelical Christian, instead of the types of people that you often see picked 
to quote in major um, articles in the newspaper or in you know TV talk show sort of situations. So the concept behind striving to find the rest of the argument is that oftentimes what people are debating about isn't even really the core issue, that you almost have to get past the emotions. An example of this, in the, in the abortion debate, I'm not sure that the actual politics of abortion change as much as people think they will. If you either grant what the pro-life community wants, that uh, at the moment of conception, you've got a fully human being there, or you know, flee from it, as the pro-choice community seems to do, where there's this desire to say that, that a yet-to-be-determined magic moment that's post-birth, maybe almost immediately after birth, but post-birth, is a, a step where personhood is conferred upon people. And the most scientifically-minded people that I know who maintain this particular pro-choice perspective with what I think is this particular pro-choice fallacy – have yet to produce any scientific evidence to show us genetically when that magic happens, or even truthfully, physiologically, when that magic happens. And the truth of the matter is, neither one of those things represent the rest of the argument. If the pro-life community is so busy arguing about when life begins, they haven't established that that answer alone means that a woman needs to be held hostage in her own body for any period of time. Nine months, nine minutes, nine years, whatever. So the rest of the argument isn't even being made because the two polarizing groups on that issue are too, too busy arguing about a question that's almost totally related to time. As I'll get to maybe perhaps this summer as well, I've got some thoughts on time too. And um, I don't think that almost any discussion we have that's based on a time question also misses the rest of the argument. And last but not least, just another kind of restatement on the notion of hypocrisy. Once you've, you know, once you've had an argument or a discussion where you've granted your opponent everything, and then you're holding them accountable for the integrity of their own beliefs based on the things they wanted you to give them, and you've made them a given, and then you've also found the rest of the argument. So you've gotten past the trivial stuff because you've given ground right away on things that don't even really matter and gotten to the part of the argument that does matter. The fourth principle is to come back and say, hypocrisy is really important, and we've got to be very wary of it and very on guard for it. So you've been given a lot of ground. Some concessions have been made on both sides, each side holding itself accountable for the integrity of the new positions that have been you know, undertaken, positions that usually are somewhere closer to the middle of the argument than the polar opposites that, that would have started. And then from there... A different perspective has been obtained. Um, the rest of the argument has been found, so to speak. You have to then look back to where you started and say, okay, now that I'm at a new starting point, so to speak, and I've got a different perspective on what the real question is, I've got to make sure I'm not being a hypocrite. I've got to make sure that if there are things from my original position that need to be renounced, I renounce those things. And if there are things that I need to embrace because of my new position, I turn around and embrace those things as well. Now, I don't know about you, but in my opinion, we don't see debate done this way. In, in America today, certainly, and not so much in the world either. You don't see what I would describe as intellectual discourse happening at all. Now, part of it is that it takes some time to have the kind of discussion where you can really actually find out what your opponent wants to be their entrenched position and figure out how much of that position you can give to them. It requires listening more than we do. It also requires talking more than we do, because some people might de declare game, set, match the second you say, hey, I'm willing to grant you that a fetus is human. I'm willing to grant you that a, that a, a zygote is human. When that's not really the end of the discussion, it's really only the beginning of the discussion. So the soundbite culture, truthfully, 
works against us here. So let me kind of hit these four again and talk about them with a quick example or two, just to kind of get a sense of, you know, how would I do debate? And I'm going to try to find things that uh, either are from my past or even some stuff that's currently going on in, in, my, uh, in my friendships and in my acquaintanceships that are real, for want of a better word. So let me start off with the first notion of, of granting your opponents everything. And I want to talk a little bit about the Bible as fiction. Because, you know, the strange concept that I hear out there of, you know, we, we can't be 100% certain that there ever was a Jesus, uh, and that we can't be 100% certain that there ever was a David or a Solomon or an Abraham. And I'll grant you that if you get far, far enough back in history that you're looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yeah, we're really going to have a tough time kind of validating that. But in the case of like Herod, you know, we, let's say we, we can't explain Solomon's temple because it was destroyed and rebuilt. Was there a King Herod? And if not, how do we explain that temple? <laughs> Where do those ruins come from, in other words? But I'm willing to not have an argument on that ground. I'm willing instead to grant the Bible is 100% fiction. I'm willing to grant it in the context of the argument about how we should be handling the use of the Bible in schools. So where we stand in the United States of America today, and this may shock people because people may not realize that we have this, this interesting dichotomy that has virtually been unchanged for the last 30 years. Um, the Bible is absolutely welcome in school. It's not an issue. Any child who wants to bring his own Bible with him with his, the rest of his books, read it during lunch, read it during study hall, perfectly welcome. Not an issue. A school would get in a great deal of trouble with the U.S. federal government and the state governments and the courts as well, because this is a position that's been pretty firmly entrenched in most of the legal standings, whether it's legislative or judicial. School can't stop a kid from reading his Bible. School can also, you know, can't stop a kid from praying either. What the schools in, you know, conjoined against doing is indoctrination. So the school can't lead the child in prayer. The school can't formally lead a Bible study. Now, after school hours, an extracurricular group could get together for that purpose, and a, a teacher could potentially, as a volunteer on his own time, be a sponsor of that group. And that's where you begin to get you know, areas of conflict. But the truth is, the Bible's welcome in public schools all over America today. Not a big deal. And I'm wondering if, if you're an international listener, if that makes sense to you, or if you think that this is the source of major conflict, that, that uh, either that... In America, everyone's forced to read it, which is not true. It's not part of the curriculum. Or that in America, no one's allowed to read it. Because when you, if you watch just the 700 Club or some of the other televangelists, you'd think that the Bible is under attack, you know, or some of those other kind of all the hyperbole you hear. But my question is, what happens if the Bible is declared fiction from a school curriculum perspective? So if we just look at, okay, right now, the Bible isn't used as a classroom teaching tool. And when it is, the teachers have to be very careful. Yeah, you'll, you'll see it pop up a little bit in world history courses because we do have historical figures from whom we've taken historical facts who do refer to people like Herod and also to people like Jesus. And we have all this you know, background evidence of, well, there was a temple and there was a census and all this other sort of stuff. But even then, they sort of have to walk on eggshells to make sure they do it right. From a literature class perspective, I suppose that if a student wanted um, as extra credit to do something related to the Bible or the Bible as literature, that they might be permitted to do that. But it can't be part of the curriculum. So if the Bible were formally declared fiction, would that cement this deal we have going on? Would that forever close the door on the Bible being used in schools? Or is, in fact, the fact that Christians say the Bible is fact— 
one of the things that has created this separation, uh, a separation between church and state, if you will, where the um, employees of the school, teachers and so forth, are state employees, so they're the state, and um, the evangelical Christian would be the church side of that debate. But what happens to that argument if an evangelical Christian grants, for the sake of argument in a debate, trying to grant their opponents everything, that the Bible is fiction? My opinion is that you now have taken the number one best-selling piece of fiction in the history of literature that in and of itself, as you read through the pages, represents an incredible variety of writing, from poetic writing to at least um, historic within the context of the style of writing inside the fiction, to apocalyptic writing, to biographical, again, within the context of fiction. You have all these different writing styles present there in a book that is, again, the number one best-selling book in the history of book publishing, and uh, one of the first you know, books ever published. I mean, part of the reason we have um, the publication systems we do today is because of technology that was put in place specifically for the purpose of printing the Bible. So the Bible as fiction as a concept would work in the sense that if the church were to grant that idea, you would suddenly have Bible in schools as part of the teaching curriculum in schools. Because I don't know how you can actually teach world literature and ignore that document. You certainly cannot teach... World literature translated into the language of, you know, in our case, in the English language, without dealing with the Bible, because it's the most translated book of all time. So the very people who might want to make an argument that the Bible doesn't belong part of the school curriculum, and their reason for feeling that way is because they think the book is 100% total fiction, might suffer greatly from my technique of granting your opponents everything. Because if they believe what they say they believe about the Bible— then the Bible not only can be taught in schools, it must be taught in schools, if the schools are going to have any intellectual credibility whatsoever. Ironically, of course, the evangelical Christian side of this argument isn't going to like that at all. That's more than they could probably give up. But it's an interesting dichotomy that a, the Christian side of the argument would win this debate over the use of Bible in schools only by giving up more ground than they could possibly stand. And the non-Christian side of the debate, the, the very strong, strict separation of church and state side of the debate, if they got everything they wanted, would ultimately lose everything at the same time. That's what I mean by the power of the perspective of understanding what it means to grant your opponent everything. Okay, the second one ties into this politics, this idea that our political system is a bad story because it's, it presumably only has two sides. Well, no story ever has just two sides, at least no story worth reading ever has just two sides. And in this regard, I'd like to kind of hold up the idea of holding others accountable for the integrity of the positions they've carved out for themselves. As a Christian man, I've asked a Christian question of both Republicans and Democrats. And if that seems silly, remember, we're dealing with American politics, where most of these people are elected to office either because they, they said they were Christians and are, or got elected to office because they said they were Christians when they're not. So I think both parties are sort of on record here as perhaps being uh, accountable to certain Christian standards. And to me, in the current ongoing debate about our budget crisis, where the Democrats would like to uh, find cuts in other areas besides Social Security, Medicare, um, health care, education, uh, and seem afraid to even mention the word military spending. This despite the fact that our military spending is far in excess of any other superpower in the history of the world. If you look at our spending compared to 
the nearest competitors, whether they be allies of ours or enemies of ours or historic enemies of ours, how much more do we spend than those other countries? So if we're the number one military spender in the world, do we spend the equivalent of number two and three? Do we spend the equivalent of number two and three times two? Or do we spend the equivalent of the rest of the top five times 10? It's a lot closer to that other number. But the Democrats seem afraid to even talk about military spending because in the bizarre nature of our electoral process, being quote unquote soft on crime or soft on terrorism is a virtual guarantee that you're going to lose the election. Despite the fact that, um, as Dan Carlin has noted several times on his program, the number one threat to the United States from a national security perspective is the potential collapse of our economy. And one of the best ways to address the potential collapse of our economy is to deal not just with social programs, but also with military programs. Just because the Constitution provides directly for uh, federal government spending in the area of defense doesn't mean that we have to spend more money as a percent of the rest of the world than any country in the history of the world has in this area. So uh, it's a little bit of a shaky thing for me, but I think the Democrats kind of get it that there's a lot of uh, budget solution to be had on the military side of the coin. And the, the Republicans have been very clear about their point of view that they would like, uh, you know, caps on spending. They would like to slash Social Security and, and Medicare. They would like to roll back on many social programs. So they've, they've got this other perspective. And I guess my question for for us is, are we right to assume that the Republicans, as a rule, are probably more likely to be evangelical Christian in their perspective than the Democrats are? And, and that's a question I'm just going to grant, again, granting my opponents everything. I'm going to grant that I could be wrong about this. But let's, for the sake of argument, if you can grant me a few things, grant me that, yeah, probably the Republicans are a little bit closer to, to being um, evangelical Christian than the Democrats are. So my question on the budget is, what would Jesus do? Or more specifically, what would Jesus have us do? And I don't know for sure that Jesus would say, you shouldn't be spending any money on your, on your defense budget. You could find some scriptural justification for that if you went looking specifically for it, which I think is usually a, a mistake in how to read the Bible. Reading the Bible as pure fiction is a better approach than reading the Bible for justifications. Um, so... And you see justifications on two sides. You see people who read the Bible for justifications that there's internal contradictions that can justify their excuse for rejecting the document. Or you see people reading the Bible for justifications for their position that it's okay to blow up abortion clinics. You see it both sides of the political spectrum or all sides of the political spectrum can approach the Bible from the wrong perspective. But I think that the question of what would Jesus have us do with our budget Really, it makes sense to start that discussion squarely with the Republicans. And just to grant me, for the sake of argument, that if those folks are a little bit closer to Jesus, asking them to do a little bit more uh, of this budgetary process his way should be easy, should be a piece of cake, should make total sense. No one should be offended by that. And yet I will bet you that even the even bringing up the topic is going to be offensive to a lot of the very conservative wing of the Republican Party. Because what I'm going to suggest under this heading of, you know, holding yourself accountable for the integrity of your positions is that Jesus would have us feed the poor. Jesus would have us educate not just men, but also women and certainly children. 
Jesus would have us make sure that we're doing everything in our power to take care of the needs of others, whether those be medical needs. He specifically mentions on multiple occasions, widows and orphans. And there can be no doubt that by that he's meaning women and children, and also beyond any doubt, the elderly. So if you look at the current perspective of the Republican Party, are we getting this right? Are we doing what Jesus would do? Or have we started by doing the exact things he would have us not do on the hope that somehow the budget will all square that out when it's all said and done? Um, I've mentioned before the idiotic tax idea that if the federal government cuts its budget by you know $1,000 by eliminating a program and that $1,000 then flows down to the state, which has to raise taxes to cover it, you haven't gotten a tax cut. And if the state government doesn't raise taxes to cover it and passes the burden on to the local area, the municipality where this, this program literally exists, whether that be a mental health program or, or what, and the city or the county have to raise the $1,000 to pay for it, you still haven't gotten a tax cut. But the Jesus question is more like, what happens if nobody covers the need? What happens if the item gets lined out of the federal budget and doesn't get taken care of in the state budget, and doesn't get taken care of in the city or the county budget, and now this program doesn't exist anymore. And then we have people who really are in need, whether they be mentally disabled, whether they you know, have some other sort of health concern, and we probably haven't done what Jesus would have us do, have we? So to the Democrats, the other question, the same question would apply. It just applies in a slightly different way in the sense of saying, we should be taking care of widows and orphans, meaning we should do it. When Jesus says, uh, the poor will always be with you, the word with there much better translates as among you. So you can't just write the right check and make your problem go away. Um, to do the right thing, you have to be as close to it as you possibly can, which means that maybe some of the solutions we need shouldn't be federal. Maybe they shouldn't even be state. Maybe they should be local. And if the Democrats care as much about these social programs as they purport, perhaps what Jesus would have us do is get those solutions much closer to the local level in every conceivable way and less about a big brother government trying to fix everything. So that's kind of the perspective that I come in with. So what does it mean to hold people you know, uh, accountable for the integrity of their position? It's simply this. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that in, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says, you know what? Don't presume to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. First, remove the, the log from your eye before you try to do anything about the speck in your brother's eye. And I have no doubt that Jesus would still hold that same principle to be true if the degrees were shifted completely. If you've got a speck in your eye, don't try to help your brother carry a bunch of logs around. Fix the speck in your eye first before you help your brother deal with his log that's blocking his vision or that is in his eye, so to speak. So... If you're truly a Christian, if you're a Christian representing the United States of America by sitting in a legislative capacity, either in the United States Congress or in the, in the United States Senate, if you're a House representative or a senator, have you removed the speck from your own eye? Because my guess is it's not a speck. My guess is it's a log. I'm going to grant the Republicans everything. We are spending way too much, far too irresponsibly on a lot of programs that probably shouldn't be managed by the federal government. And I'm going to grant the Democrats things the Democrats don't even have the courage to ask to be granted. 
And that's that we do not need to be spending 10 times as much money as England, France, Russia combined on national defense. We need to stop presuming to be the, the police officer of the world or the mother superior of the planet and decide what it is we will do and won't do militarily and spend accordingly. We're spending Cold War money on a new world problem, and it doesn't work. The only way to get there, though, is for the Republicans to say, we're not hypocrites. We're going to start our budget solution by dealing with the things in the budget that we like. Where are the things in military spending that don't make sense? Where are the things in certain social programs that the Republicans are fond of that don't make sense? And then turn to the Democrats and say, okay, we just found several trillion dollars that we can cut. Where are your cuts? And then the Democrats, the same idea. You know, you don't presume to tell me that there aren't things that should be better in these social programs or certain social programs that we should just walk completely away from. You don't need Republicans telling you about them. You just find them yourself and bring them to the table and play a little game of chicken because you like to play games of chicken. Fine. Play a little game of chicken where you say, here's my cuts. Where are your cuts? And if we start by getting rid of the things we each agree can be cleaned up on our own side of the political spectrum, we might find we have saved enough money to make the budget work just by doing that alone. Presuming, of course, that we do it with some sort of integrity. Hello, you wonderful lot. I'm Ultimate Manus, and I'm here to promote an apotheosis of a bombast. But instead of me waffling on about it, I decided to put a couple of clips together just to show you what it's all about. Enjoy! All I remember is uh, Penelope Pitstop did my brain in. It's like a dart, little dart kind of rocket car, it looked yeah. like. We actually had Stephen Hawking on the show. Tato Chip looks like Jesus, or... Were you a BBC One or an ITV man? Got no shirt on. Me and a friend got uh, drunk one night, and we started writing down inappropriate Mr. Men names. <laughs> Mr. Man and Little Miss, those ones you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Little Miss Whore. Bring me Penelope Pitstop. So there you have it, guys. If you do like it, join myself and Scott Copperman at bombastpodcast.podbean.com or find us somewhere in iTunes. Thanks. Kind of repeating the third principle, the idea of striving to find the rest of the argument. Maybe the best example of this that I've ever personally experienced in my lifetime was in a small town in the American Midwest, where I was working on the editorial board of a daily newspaper. Yeah, you know, daily newspaper city population, probably less than 50,000. But, you know, one of those daily newspapers that was kind of the community hub. So you had a, a shopping mall in this city. There really wasn't your mall so much as the mall for your city and other little towns from three or four counties surrounding you. So kind of an area leadership kind of a position. And we had one of the this, you know, late 80s, early 90s. We had one of the uh, early cases where we were still learning a lot about AIDS and, and HIV transmission. And there was a lot of talk about whether you could get it from the dentist, whether you would, you know, whether it's blood transfusions or whether there's other sort of medical practices that could do it. You still probably in this part of the Midwest, small town America, probably dealing with toilet seat fears and lots of other things as well. And also, because of the nature of the AIDS debate, really still now, but definitely back then, the whole thing was incredibly sexualized. So as, as soon as somebody realized they had the HIV virus, anybody who heard about that would probably assume a couple of things right up front, that that person had done something sexually to earn this disease, and that there might be um, a homosexual orientation driving it. And so what, what happened in this small town was that a kid who was probably no more than 10 or 11 years old had contracted the HIV virus. And as far as I know, I haven't you know, really followed this over the years from moving out of that state into another part of the country. 
I don't know that the mystery of how it was transmitted was ever solved. There were cases in other states, Florida, I believe, was one of them, where there there seemed to be some reason to think that maybe a, a dental hygiene situation might have transmitted the HIV virus for one reason or another. This kid had not uh, had sex with anybody, um, had not been had hadn't gotten a full on blood transfusion, so there was a genuine mystery about it. And where there's mystery. There's going to be fear. And in the course of following this from a newspaper perspective, we had a full-time reporter, kind of local local news, state news, who was tracking the story right up front. Because the little community it happened in wasn't the city that our paper was based in, but it was only about 25, 30 minutes away, um, if that. So you had a really close local story to us with a lot of intrigue because it's the first time that the state I lived in was being asked to decide what to do in this situation. You got to almost think back to what it would have been like right around the turn of the late eighties, early nineties and say, yeah, we, we weren't equipped to handle this. Frankly, um, a kid shows up with the HIV virus in, in the school district I'm in right now. I'm not a hundred percent sure my school district is equipped to handle that either. And that was without all the fear with because there was much more uncertainty then. And this was a peculiar situation where the, the source of the transmission of the disease was completely unknown, which you ended up with over time. And you can predict this probably. It's so easy. I don't even need to tell you. You ended up over time with a witch hunt because what happened was the state decided that this boy could stay in school, but that it was appropriate for the school to take measures to sequester him from the general population. So he wasn't going to be excluded from school. He didn't have to be homeschooled. He didn't have to be placed in a private or charter school environment that was volunteering to take him on because there weren't a lot in a city this small. This was a 10, 15,000 people tops. But so instead, what I consider to be kind of an injustice, uh, the kid was allowed to be in class. Everyone knew who he was because of all the publicity and all the hubbub. And he was placed in with special education. So you essentially have a kid who who doesn't have learning disabilities, who isn't mentally challenged, who simply has a physical impairment um, that he has picked up from who knows where, who is allowed to stay in the school system, creating all kinds of havoc and furor from some parents, but not allowed to be in the general population. And instead, in with you know learning in a classroom with people who have severe learning disabilities in some cases, so you know kind of you know splitting the baby in two you might say is what the state chose to do, and I remember sitting in an editorial board meeting. Now, editorial board was essentially the editorial editor, the assistant editorial editor, editor in chief, managing editor, publisher, you know, and and me, <laughs> ad hoc representative, in there discussing what we were going to write about on the. The editorial column, the actual editorials that the newspaper was responsible for. So what did the editors think? What did the publisher agree, you know, as was our opinion, our collective opinion? And we were uh, confronting this issue loud and clear because we kept getting stories in from the managing editor, from the from the news side of, of the conversation, that the parents were in uproar, that this kid didn't belong in the classroom, that they were going to pull their kids out of school, they were going to start their own charter school, they needed to protect their children. This was an epidemic waiting to happen. How long before this kid eating in the cafeteria did something to give one of their other kids the disease? It was, you know, I, I don't want to call it a witch hunt, but it was awfully, awfully close. And in the midst of all that conversation and getting back to the idea of, of uh, striving to find the rest of the argument, I rose the argument and it, it, it was shocked me a little bit that it took me, you know, uh, fresh out of college, entry level position, more or less, uh, frankly, honored to be part of the editorial board conversation at all. Most of those meetings I sat in, took it in, agreed or disagreed, you know, kind of stayed on the sidelines 
But in that meeting, I really felt compelled to take a very strong, forceful opinion, not only about what we were going to put on the editorial page as our point of view, but also about what we were doing on the front page and how irresponsible I felt the reporting was. Now, why was it irresponsible? It was irresponsible because the storytelling and the way the interviews were conducted made this about the kid and his family versus all the other parents and students in school, that we had set up this false dichotomy, this we-they. The kid either belongs in school or he doesn't. He's either a danger to the other students or he's not. And that the two combatants were this victim who had contracted a disease we don't know how, and his parents, and anyone else who cared about him, truthfully, and the rest of the school. And it was obviously, in my mind, a bullying situation. So the question that I asked him in terms of seeking the rest of the story, and I'm going to pause here for a second, and slow down a little and see if you can get there with me. Was this really the kid and his family versus the rest of the school? Were these other parents upset with the kid and his family? Well, I mean, unmistakably, yes, they were. The very idea that this family had the audacity to suggest that their, their son should stay in school. The, the crime of them thinking that this kid who was terminal should get educated at all. Pull him, out of class. Pull him out of school was the argument. Take him out of classes. Keep him at home. with. He's going to be dead in two years anyway was the perspective. Because this was pre-Magic Johnson. So we had not yet seen a case where somebody who had gone from being a carrier of HIV to an AIDS patient um, survive for very long. Truth be known. No, the real problem is that no one in the entire newspaper... And no one in this small community had asked themselves for the rest of the argument. This beef was not between those parents and this one family. The beef was between the parents and the state. No one was asking the State Board of Education to challenge their decision. We weren't interviewing the people who actually you know, sat at the state level and made the decision that this is how this state's going to handle it. The state made a decision that he can stay in school and that he also can be sequestered from the rest of the population. There were at least three sides to this story because both the upset parents who were out of control had a beef with the state. And I think probably the, the parents of this kid had a beef with the state, too. That knowing what we know now, there really wasn't a reason to be that worried about having this kid locked down in a special education environment. But no one was asking for the rest of the story because we were presuming this conflict was between two people who acted in interviews like they were in conflict with each other. But just because they weren't smart enough to know that their real beef was that they disagreed with the state didn't relieve the newspaper and certainly not the editorial board of the newspaper from its obligation to step up and speak up and say no. We think you should be speaking to the people that you're really mad at. And if you're not bright enough to know that you're mad at the state because you disagree with the state's decision, then as an editorial board, we're going to help you out and tell you who you should be mad at. And that's perfectly appropriate because it helps everyone find the real argument, the rest of the story, the thing that they're mad about. Finally, and very quickly, just in terms of you know, kind of gauging our own hypocrisy and, and measuring that. Everyone knows I'm a huge fan of film, and I particularly love foreign film. And I think my argument for why I love foreign film so much, and why I actually, you know, frankly love silent film so much, and movies from the classic era of the Hollywood studio system so much, is that I like the best. This is very consistent with what I would always tell new employees of the record store, where you're looking at all the genre of music that we sell in the store. 
and you probably come in as a kid. So you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I like heavy metal or rap, maybe both. I like alternative and pop and rock, but I don't have an answer for easy listening. Might not have an answer for contemporary Christian. Jazz and new age are going to be tough for me. Classical harder still. And if you think you're pretty good there and you think you're, you're even good in country and bluegrass, if you're a typical Midwestern teen or 20-something, you know, good luck with world music and Latin. There's going to be a section of the store you're not good at. And what I always told people is, listen, I don't want you to lie to my customers. I'm going to provide opportunities for you to listen to as many genre as we carry so that you can actually honestly say, this is the blues recording I like best. It may not be the best. It's the one I like the best. Here's why I like it. So you have to find what it is you like. And the truth is, the best can't be just in the rock and roll section. The best can't just be heavy metal. If you only listen to heavy metal, then shame on you. You're missing something. But likewise, if you only listen to contemporary Christian music, shame on you. You're missing something. And in the realm of film, some of the greatest films ever made weren't made in English. I don't need to rattle off a bunch of examples to prove that to you. It's logical. At the very least, there's a best Italian film and a best French film and a best Swedish film and a best Russian film that even if you say, well, Hollywood is the best that there will ever be, and I would disagree with you, and we'd have to go through an elaborate process of me granting you everything you need from your argument, but still holding you accountable for you know, the integrity of your position, and so forth and so on. The reality is, even if you do think that Hollywood is miles better than everything else, there's still a best Swedish film. And the best film that's ever been made in, in the language of Danish is probably a film worth seeing, if only for that reason. And I would tell you that probably the best films that have ever been made in the history of Danish cinema are beyond just worth watching. They probably stack up better than, well, they certainly stack up better than Hollywood attempts to remake them. Let's put it that way. So here's the, uh, the hypocrisy argument that I struggle with. I've got a lot of friends and family who will tell me that, that I'm wasting my time, that those are reading movies, that there's pointless, that there's no reason anyone should ever watch a subtitled film. And when I hear this from friends in the church, it always strikes me as a little bit odd. Because what happened in the last you know, five or six years is the argument went from there's no reason to ever watch a foreign film. There's no way I'd ever watch a film where I had to read the subtitles to follow it. Between that point and where we stand today, what happened was the release of the movie The Passion of the Christ. And I'm wondering how many of my friends who are Christian, who are not a fan of foreign films, remember seeing The Passion of the Christ in English. Because the movie wasn't made in English. It was filmed primarily in Latin with a little bit of Aramaic. And Mel Gibson's first thought was to release it in theaters with no subtitles whatsoever. Ironically, no subtitles whatsoever would have fulfilled the answer to my friend's complaint that there's no way they would go to a movie and read subtitles. And yet, I think your average Christian could follow the film The Passion of the Christ perfectly without understanding a word anyone's saying. It's, it's a very visual film, for one thing. But the other thing is, how many people have seen the movie, theatrically or in DVD, with subtitles, read the subtitles all the way through the movie, and still in their heart feel like you should never go to see a movie with subtitles, what a waste of time, it's just a reading movie. Because the minute you make an exception for the passion of the Christ, you've lost your argument. It's a hypocritical point of view to grant me that the passion of the Christ is the one movie you'll see with subtitles. And yet maintain this idea that no one should ever waste their time watching a subtitled film. It's every bit as hypocritical as George H.W. Bush deciding he was going to make sure that no doctor ever learned how to perform an abortion. 
that no medical textbook covered that procedure, that no federally uh, provided insurance handbook covered family planning at all, not just abortion, but also birth control, that literally no one would ever learn it. And yet at the same time in his mind, maintain this idea that if really necessary to save the life of a dying woman or in an extreme case, um, then he would grant that an abortion might be okay. Who's going to perform it, President Bush? The people that you made sure never learned how? It's that kind of hypocrisy that I think is really the anchor here behind the notion. I'm going to grant you everything that I possibly can, but not if you're going to be a hypocrite about it. I'm going to hold you accountable for the integrity of your positions. And if you abandon your own positions, that's okay with me. Because that means, well, again, I'm going to be a master debater here, aren't I? And finally, you know, just to round out the conversation, sometimes the false dichotomy's biggest problem is not that it's a logical flaw. And then in a debate perspective, I can point out that you've committed a logical fallacy and therefore I win and you lose. No, the bigger problem is that if the conversation's happening to begin with, if there's an argument there to be made, the reality is that if the false dichotomy is present, what's, what's missing? What's missing is probably the rest of the story. What's missing is what we really ought to be discussing in the first place. And it is in this sense that consistency can actually be a problem. It's a problem when Republicans and Democrats have firmly entrenched positions that they, won't, they not only won't even listen to each other, but the Christians among those two political parties don't even listen to Jesus. It's a problem. My different drummer today, though, is somebody who's actually been lauded for having no foolish consistency in his point of view. Dwight McDonald lived in New York City from uh, March 1906 at his birth to December 1982 at his death. He's regarded as a, an American writer, editor, film critic, social critic, philosopher, and political radical. I encountered him first and foremost as a film critic. It didn't end there, but that's probably where I'm going to end my conversation about him because that's where I have the greatest personal connection to McDonald and his work. In recent years, a biography has been written about Dwight McDonald by Michael Resin called A Rebel in Defense of Tradition, The Life and Politics of Dwight McDonald, published 1994. Um, in that, uh, he's been reviewed, and I'm going to cite uh, critics from a couple of different sources, uh, theoretically two ends of the political spectrum. One, a critic from uh, the American Conservative publication, and the other one, Time Magazine. I'm going to start with that one. John Elson in Time Magazine, in 1994, at the time this... Uh, biography was published in the first place, started his article this way. In a lifetime of combative journalism, Dwight MacDonald wrote too much and sometimes too carelessly, left many projects half-finished, and was variously a Trotskyite, a socialist, a pacifist, an anarchist, and an aging camp follower of the student lefties of 1968. Yet despite his lack of discipline and consistency, many of his essays remain classics. That's a pretty good introduction to Dwight MacDonald. Quoting the biographer Rezin, McDonald was impossible to pigeonhole, difficult to categorize, and wildly unpredictable. A colleague wrote that McDonald thought with his typewriter. I think I'm guilty of this. Maybe this is one of the reasons that I esteem McDonald and his style. He was more of a sprinter than a distance runner, and many of his ambitious book-length projects were either left undone or shrank into tantalizingly insightful but incomplete articles. Once again, I'm guilty here, too. 
What remained after such a failure, however, could be a landmark essay, like The Triumph of the Fact, or Mass Cult and Mid-Cult. In the latter, MacDonald aimed his range and rhetoric at pompous middlebrowism. It's dated, since no one now worries about the popularity of Herman Woke or Pearl Buck, but the problem of high culture sagging into mediocrity has, if anything, grown more serious over the years. Consider only that some critics seriously regard Andrew Lloyd Webber as a composer of operas. If only we had MacDonald now, when we need him most. So that's one opinion about Dwight MacDonald. And I have read the uh, Mass Cult and Mid-Cult essay. Again, intended probably as a larger book-length project, but in some sort of a a manic ditch-to-ditch perspective in terms of thinking or the discipline of writing, which MacDonald has cited as having found difficult to do, just the actual process of writing, a difficult challenge to do. It did boil down into an essay, but an essay of significant length. So he was able to get his thoughts across at a length that he found appropriate, which from an American publishing perspective stuck him in a bad spot. Because what do you do with 40 pages? It's not big enough to be a book. It's far too big to be an article. And I've got a collection of essays. Uh, I believe the name of the book is actually called At Length. And that's kind of where I branched from Dwight McDonald as the film reviewer for Esquire back in the heyday of the film culture of the 1960s, little before, little after. Because it was in that at-length book that it first connected with me that, yeah, uh, sometimes you're going to have ideas that can't be expressed in a two-minute soundbite or in a 10-inch newspaper column. And Dwight MacDonald modeled that pretty well. And uh, the other essays in that collection are interesting as well. It was a book I believe I had to pick up uh, somewhere along the line, either for a speech class or an English class. And it's one of those books that I kept. And the reason that I kept it was actually Dwight MacDonald. The other reviewer that I wanted to cite, this one from the American conservative, uh, R.J. Stove. And uh, he says this, uh, all too often during his old age, MacDonald found himself dismissed as a self-destructive dilettante. Nowadays, by contrast, he occupies a secure place as America's best-known, unknown man of letters. As a film critic, he is cited in this article as being uh, a more patchier author, nevertheless scintillating, working for Esquire. Reviews there were later republished in Dwight MacDonald on movies, and that's the collection that I have. So to speak a little bit about his perspective on movies, I'll share just a couple of quick thoughts. I've already mentioned as a different drummer, Alain René, and in particular the film Last Year at Marion Bad. I find the best critical review of that film to be Dwight MacDonald's, which is published in his On Movies collection, which uh, is one of the one of the collections, along with all the writings of Stanley Kaufman, that I esteem, I esteem the most. This is a good book of film criticism. One that doesn't just speak passionately about film itself, but captures an era, and an era of a great deal of importance when foreign films had begun to influence the way movies are exhibited in America, and you begin to see some of the constraints of the motion picture production code fall away. And even in that pocket between the end of the code and the ratings board system that we have today, that period of time when what we call PG was then called GP, um, it's an interesting time, and that's really where McDonald was doing a lot of his, a lot of his writing and a lot of his criticism. Um, last year, Marion Bad may have been released internationally in the early '60s, but you're just as likely to find it showing in a cinema in the late '60s as well, because of that entire um, appetite that the film generation had. So I recommend his review on that. I will cite um, without reading. The copy in front of me. I will cite his commentary on Michelangelo Antonioni's film La Ventura, probably because I think it it just shows his wit. It's a very funny review of a a deathly serious film. 
Since a short plot summary is probably necessary, I'll provide it. In La Ventura, it starts off with a man and his girlfriend, and their relationship clearly is is having some struggles. They've decided to go on a short boating vacation from mainland Italy off to one of the islands, and she's brought along a friend of hers that he doesn't have a relationship with. They may have met, but it it still feels like a first meeting in in the way that the uh, characters are interacting. When they get to the island and the characters go ashore, uh, the friend stays behind for a while, and the man and the woman go off together. And at some point during they're just kind of exploring, kicking around, it's a pretty barren place. They go their separate ways for a few steps as well. And when he gets back to the boat, she's gone. So essentially, they go on a short vacation together. The, the unhappy girlfriend disappears. And for the rest of the two and a half hour film, the girlfriend and the boyfriend go looking for the one for the woman who linked the two of them together. And uh, I won't spoil any more than that. It's well worth watching because I think dramatically love and Tura had a huge impact on the way cinema is made today. If you've seen the films of Vim vendors and found them at all interesting or you know, other, uh, I won't drop a whole lot of names, but there are a lot of other directors who I think really owe a great deal of debt to what Antonioni was doing in terms of story and even anti story. But, the problem that uh, Dwight McDonald had with the film, he loved La Ventura, except that he didn't like the lead performance of the lead actress. Monica Vitti played the friend. And we probably know Mon- Monica Vitti's name today. If you know much about international cinema, Criterion has just released Red Desert, which is another one of the movies that she was the lead actress for under the direction of Michelangelo Antonioni. So just to put together her works for Antonioni alone, and you've got a pretty significant star on the world stage. And of course, she yeah, as a, an actress has appeared in many other films, not just Italian, but also in French and perhaps even English. Dwight McDonald's review, though, basically said that of the two actresses, he liked the disappearing girlfriend, uh, her liked her stage presence, liked her approach much better than Monica Vitti. Monica Vitti not only was an international newcomer, so she perhaps had acted before and had significant acting experience, but on this kind of a stage, she was a relative newcomer. And in the plot of the story, she was a newcomer. She was a new friend to the man, uh, aligning with him and searching for her old friend, the woman who disappeared. And Dwight McDonald summed it up perfectly. He essentially said, you know, my biggest problem with La Ventura is that the wrong actress disappeared in the first act. And that was, you know, sort of his way of doing things. Not a, a hateful, scornful approach, not that snarky, but just essentially saying, you know, here's, here's my issues. The film would have been a lot better if you'd switched these two roles. Um, I'm on the fence a little bit. Uh, I like Monica Vitti better in Red Desert than I do in La Ventura. So I'll give him credit for having an apt point of view. Finally, to end a conversation about Dwight McDonald, without spending any time whatsoever really talking about him as an historical figure, he has a short Wikipedia page, and there's other good biographical information to be had. I think probably um, an individualist anarchist or individualist anarchism would best represent the view that he ultimately landed with, this notion that the individual and what that individual needs should take precedence over any other ideological system. So not necessarily saying there shouldn't be government, but the government should be bending to the will of the individual person. To get to that point, though, he made one heck of a journey. He went from being sympathetic to Russian communism to absolutely rejecting the Soviet system altogether. Here's a quick quote from the American Conservatives article about the Dwight MacDonald biography. Actually, it's a quote from McDonald himself in correspondence with an Italian friend. If the United States doesn't or cannot change its mass culture, it will lose the war against the USSR. Americans have been made into permanent adolescents. 
scared of death, sex, old age. He feared a crushing American defeat in countries where the mere struggle for existence is important and where some of the people are grown-ups. Simply change the USSR to Islam, and that passage becomes as hideously pertinent today as it ever was back then, and he was writing in 1950. 1950, he's writing before we ever knew the name of Hugh Hefner or any publication or videotape that he would put out on the market. I'll let the final word on Dwight MacDonald come from Jeffrey Wheatcroft, an English author who has written another review of the same biography. He says that MacDonald is technically out of print right now, at least at the time that he was writing, I believe in 2006. Amazon.com did not have titles that were currently in print available. It only used used copies or uh, auction-type books available to buy. And he says he cries out for a proper reissue. An academic publisher should bring all of his work for the politics uh, journal that he founded, at least available in facsimile, or perhaps in a centennial tribute, because 2006 was the 100th year of his birth. Should there be a Dwight MacDonald reader? I would even accept a simple anthology. Pull together The Triumph of the Fact and Mass Cult and Mid Cult. Pull together his, his critical review of the Revised Standard Version when it came out, so we can line that up in our heads against other biblical translations that have followed. And definitely, pull a few reviews from Dwight MacDonald on movies. Um, last year at Marion Bad, La Ventura. Perhaps some of the Bergman films, the Faith Trilogy, would be excellent. It's about time the world heard once again from this strange and quirky New York intellectual. If you have a different opinion, of course, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.